Well, we're continuing in the book of Jonah this week in Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 17. Uh, I'll read it for our hearing this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me so you can follow along if you don't have a copy in front of you. But we'll pick up in verse 4 and read through the end of the chapter this morning. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought, a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's Word. Now, I've uh, been on bodies of water for large portions of my life uh, as someone who loves to fish, Um, and I grew up going to a place that my family had on the Louisiana side of a big reservoir that borders Texas and Louisiana called Toledo Bend. Uh, And it's a massive 60-mile-long reservoir that's a couple of miles wide at its um, its widest point. But uh, whenever storms roll into and onto that lake, because it runs north to south, When that south wind begins to blow or that north wind begins to blow, it can get rather tempestuous, okay? It can get rather rough. And I remember on several occasions in my life, I've been in storms, caught in storms on that lake uh, that I had no business being on the water during, okay? Um, I mean, we we were fishing and it began to sprinkle and it began to rain more heavily and then the wind began to blow more stiffly and so we fired up the engine and began to make our way back but by the time we made it back to the boat lane one time uh, the wind was falling almost sideways because of how hard the wind was uh, the rain was falling sideways because of how hard the wind was blowing and visibility shrunk down from miles to yards okay Um, and so I'm dependent upon the GPS graph on my dash to know where I'm navigating on the lake 
Uh, and so we're, I'm running on the lake, and I can hear the outboard engine. Uh, it, 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 and every time we would hit the crest of a wave and bounce over one, we'd hear it come out of the water and go, woo, woo, right? That's not a, it, 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 makes, it, it makes you a little, a little scared, okay, to say the least, particularly if you get off track and wander into the stumps that you can't see because you can't see but for yards ahead of you. Now, we've all been caught in really bad storms before, more than likely in our lives, whether we've been driving or whether we've been fishing, whether we've been hiking, uh, or whether we've just endured the snowpocalypse here last February. Right, the, right now, the Northeast is getting slammed by a big nor'easter, and we're awaiting a winter storm perhaps later this week where kids will get out of school because a dusting of snow falls on the ground here in North Texas. Okay? But we're, we've all know what it's like to have been caught in meteorological storms. But the reality is that we've also all experienced personal storms in our lives, haven't we? We've all experience, had those occasions when we've experienced difficult things, when the wind in our lives began to blow, when the rain in our lives began to fall, when the lightning began to crash, the thunder began to rumble, things began to ice over and get very slippery and very slick for us individually. Whether that be financially, whether that be relationally, whether that be psychologically, whether that be emotionally, we've all experienced personal storms. And this morning in the text, Jonah experiences both a meteorological storm and a personal one as well. And as we come to this text this morning, there's a particular kind of storm that Jonah's experiencing that some of us may have experienced as well. Right, and it's the storm of self-infliction. It's a self-inflicted storm. Not every storm that we face personally in life is self-inflicted. Right? Some of them arise in our lives because of the choices, decisions, or sins of other people in our lives. Some of them arise in our lives because we live in a fallen, broken world that's filled with suffering and pain. But some of them, some of them, church, are self-inflicted storms that rage around us because of our decisions. And because of our choices. And that's where Jonah finds himself this morning. So if we take a look at this text, the first thing that I want us to see in it is this. Is that sin and storms are joined at the hip. They are joined at the hip. So I remember as a child growing up, and my parents always talking about, um, you know, when, when we, my brother and I started dating, right? And you had that infatuation phase whenever you just wanted to be around that person all the time. Uh, and you did everything with them. And she would, my mom would say, you and that girl are joined at the hip, right? And what that meant was, I don't see one of you without seeing the other, right? They're always together. They're always connected. And the same is true when it comes to sin and storms. They are joined at the hip. Now, let me be clear. Not every storm that upends our lives has a direct correlation to a specific sin that may have been committed by us. Sometimes storms, as I said earlier, erupt as a result of living in a fallen world, sometimes from someone else's actions, but there are self-inflicted storms, and this is where Jonah finds himself in the middle of as he flees from the felt presence of the Lord. As he runs away from God, Jonah faces this self-inflicted storm, and he discovers something because of it that you and I would do well to remember about the Lord, and that is this, is that there is no refuge from God. There is no refuge from Him. In verse, let me tell you why. In verse 4, you're like, where do you see that? In verse 4, we're told that what the Lord does in response to Jonah's running 
is, it, it flies in the face of our modern notions of God. Verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now the word under our word mighty, when we read about a mighty tempest in the Hebrew, is the word same word used for great back in verse 2, whenever God speaks of that great city, Nineveh. And so what Jonah discovers is that if he will not go where God is sending him, to that great city, to those great sinners, the Assyrians, who in his mind were unworthy of God's mercy and grace, if Jonah would not go to that great city, then in his sin and rebellion of running from the Lord, he would run headlong into a great storm. He would run headlong into this mighty tempest. You see, when we turn our backs on God and we shake our fist in defiance at Him, whenever we run from His felt presence, we rebel against His commands, try to numb His conviction in our lives through whatever means or measures possible. When we neglect and ignore His call, we're essentially doing this. We're stepping out from underneath the umbrella of God's mercy, of God's love, of God's protection upon our lives, and we expose ourselves to all kinds of self-inflicted thunderstorms, hurricanes, tornadoes, blizzards, typhoons, floods. By our own decisions, when we run from the will of God. Now, listen, so often what we want to do whenever those storms erupt that may be self-inflicted in our lives is we want to chalk them up to natural consequences of our actions. And while it is true that there are natural consequences to many of our actions, in verse 4 we find a statement that, as I said before, doesn't square with our modern notions of God. The text tells us that the Lord hurled, hurled a great wind upon the sea. That word hurled is used elsewhere in ancient writings to describe the hurling or throwing of a spear or a javelin. In other words, it is not some passive thing that God is sitting up there and going, well, I'll just let the natural consequences of Jonah's actions unfold for him. No, God picks up the wind and like a javelin, like those guys in the Olympics who run and take their steps in track and field and launch it out into the field, God takes that wind and he launches it onto the ocean onto the sea, and the sea becomes tempestuous. This raging storm is in response to Jonah's rebellion and running. In fact, everyone in this story recognizes this storm has a divine origin. That's why the sailors in verse 5 are all crying out to their God. Right? There was this mixture of pagan sailors there on the boat, and they're all terrified and you imagine these seasoned sailors who had made this trip perhaps multiple times in their life from Joppa to Tarshish delivering cargo they are terrified wetting their pants on the deck because this storm is no ordinary storm and they're crying out to their gods the captain comes down below in verse 6 and he says to Jonah what are you doing sleeping get up and call out to your god we're all crying out to our gods right we're equal opportunity criers here so one of these gods is going to answer because they recognize this is no ordinary storm it has divine origins Even Jonah, as we'll see in a moment, recognizes this storm is from the Lord. But this action of God hurling this storm upon the sea, it's hard for us to reconcile with this image that we have of God as kind of being the perfect gentleman who never 
violate our decisions. Right? Who, who never goes against our will. Who never does anything that would, that would undermine our desires. A God who doesn't intervene in our lives except to kind of give us our best life now. Right? That's what God intervenes for, is to make everything comfortable. He intervenes to make everything easy. He intervenes to contribute to my retirement account and to give us whatever we want whenever we want it, like a vending machine that we put our quarters in and push the button and everything falls out. Right? That's when God can intervene. But at this point in the story, we discover what is for some a terrifying truth about God, that while God is infinitely good, He is not safe. I love the way C.S. Lewis captures this in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. He depicts this truth about God in this exchange between Susan and Lucy, the two Pevensey girls, as they find themselves in the land of Narnia, and they find themselves in dialogue with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Okay? So you have these two beavers, built a hut, a dam there, sopping up the water, and they're living in their little hut, and they discover or share with the children that the great king, Aslan, is not a man, but in fact is a lion. And here's how Susan responds. She says, oh, said Susan, he writes this in the book, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan with their knees knocking and they're either braver than most or just all silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. You see, some of the storms that you and I face in life are not natural consequences. Some of the storms are sent by God as he chases us down for our own good. For our own good. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, he says, we cannot escape God's presence even if we will not joyfully live in it. Or as Charles Spurgeon described God, he said he was the hound of heaven who chases down, hunts out, sniffs out hard-hearted sinners and brings them to repentance for their own good through whatever means or measures are necessary. Now think about the self-inflicted storms that maybe you've experienced in your own life. Right? Maybe you've experienced a, a financial storm in your own life that may have been self-inflicted. Not all poverty, not all financial struggles have a spiritual source. There are larger economic structures, and maybe even societal issues at play. But when we run from God's call to govern our lifestyle in accordance with biblical principles of giving and of saving and of spending, then you can easily create a self-inflicted financial storm. And you can do it in one of two ways. Okay? You can do it through hoarding. Right? Keeping everything that you possibly can acquire for yourself. Or you can do it through frivolously overextending yourself on all kinds of lines of credit. And at the end of the day, find yourself to be house poor, to be car poor, to be credit card poor because you're barely able to make the minimum payments on everything that you've overextended yourself to buy. Right? And either way, through the sin of hoarding or through the sin of overextending, you can rob yourself of the joy of giving cheerfully. 
And there may be times, either because of our hoarding or because of our overextending, that God may hurl a great wind upon the sea of our lives and purposefully dry up our income stream to teach us that on one side of the coin, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, as Jesus himself would tell us. So that no matter how much we hoard and how much we keep and how many barns we build to store up all of our goods and grain, at the end of the day, those things are going to be stripped away from us and all we will have is what we were born into this world with whenever we meet Jesus. That life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions. Or He may dry up our income streams and force us to reorder our priorities, put governors on our spending if we run from God's call to generosity through overextending. God can hurl a great wind into our lives financially. God can hurl psychological storms into our lives. Listen, not every battle with depression and anxiety is spiritual. I believe, I, I, I've been very transparent in the past about my own struggle with mental health about my own time in counseling and with physicians and medication to help balance out chemicals in my brain, in my body. There, are, there is such a thing as clinical depression that impacts people's mental health. However, when you look at the trends over the course of the last 30 to 40 years, as our society has run further and further and further and further from God, you see a rise in anxiety and depression that has become broader, but also younger. Some of that is self-inflicted as we have abandoned the God who made us, who gives us purpose, who orders our lives. And don't write me an email afterwards and say, you said that there's no such thing as physiological... It. No, that's not what I said. Right? I said there is such a thing as clinical depression. There are such things as physiological issues. But there is such a thing as spiritual realities operating as well. And when we abandon God, sometimes the depression, sometimes the anxiety comes from our running and shaking our fist and defiance at Him. Now listen, not all storms erupt simultaneously in our lives with our sin. Okay? If I could illustrate it to you this way, sometimes storms are immediate. Okay? Right? You can do damage in one of two ways. You can do great damage in, by getting in a car accident, can't you? You could do serious damage by getting in an automobile accident, but you could also do serious damage by being exposed to unsafe levels of radiation. One you're going to feel immediately. The next one you're going to feel later, over the course of time. So just because all sins and storms are joined at the hip doesn't mean that for every sin there's going to be an immediate storm that erupts in your life. Sometimes it takes years for that thunderous cloud to build. But sin and storms are joined at the hip. And unfortunately, whenever we experience those kinds of storms in our lives by disregarding God's commands and God's call and running from Him, we aren't the only ones who suffer. Because our sin oftentimes has collateral consequences. 
collateral consequences. Webster's defines the words collateral damage as injury inflicted on something or someone other than an intended target. In other words, someone experiences a degree of suffering through no fault of their own, but only because of their proximity at the, to, to the intended target. Uh, in warfare, they talk about collateral damage being when civilians get caught up in crossfire between two warring armies. They were not themselves engaged in acts of warfare, but they get caught up in those acts of warfare, and they are collateral damage. And as the story unfolds, listen, we witness some collateral consequences in the lives of people who were in close proximity to Jonah during his flight from the presence of the Lord. As we're introduced to the captain of the ship and his crew. See, these sailors report for their jobs that morning at the port of Joppa, ready to transport cargo bound for the other side of the world. And they stand to make a little extra money because somebody wants to stow away with them and flee from God's presence. So you can imagine their distress whenever we're told in the text that the ship was threatening to break apart. Okay? As if the ship had a will and was saying to them, if we continue in this direction, I'm going to come to pieces. The ship was threatening to break apart. And in verse, verses 7 to 10, we find this fascinating exchange between Jonah and the crew. In verse 7, they decide to cast lots, which was often done in the ancient world to make decisions or seek direction. So they cast lots so they could determine something on whose account has this evil, this storm erupted upon us. They recognize, again, this is no ordinary storm, and somebody's actions must be responsible for bringing this upon us. And lo and behold, the lot, when it is cast, falls on Jonah. So they begin to inquire of Jonah. Who are you? Where do you come from? What people do you belong to? Of what country are you? And Jonah's response in verse 9 is theologically true, but personally false. Him because listen to what he says. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. That is all theologically true, but for Jonah up to this point in the story, he has acted as one who does anything but fear and revere the Lord who made the sea and the dry land by running from him. Jonah's not acted as one who has to give an account to God, must answer for his actions and decisions. Then in verse 10, the crew responds in fear, exclaiming to Jonah, what have you done? Because, listen, Jonah had read them in on his plan, okay? He wasn't keeping secrets from them. He's like, hey, you need to take me to the other side of the earth because I'm running from the Lord. I'm trying to escape his presence. So they knew exactly why he was on board with them. And so they say, what have you done? Because they recognize that if this is the God, and he uses the, 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 the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. If this is the God who made the sea and the dry land, you know what that is in Hebrew? It's called a merism. You know what a merism is? Some of you do, some of you don't. But a merism is this. It's stating two polar ends of an extreme in order to communicate everything in between. And so when Jonah says, I fear the Lord God who made the sea and the dry land, he's saying, I fear the God who rules over all of creation. So this storm, it's from him. And so that's why they're like, what in the world are you doing, man? Right? Snap out of it. 
But that's where they find them. That's where Jonah finds himself. And the sailors recognize that this storm is divine retribution for someone's actions. And the responsible party now comes to be revealed. And it threatened their lives as well. Jonah's sin had collateral consequences. And listen, I know this experience firsthand. I'm sure some of you do as well. Because whenever we rebel against God, whenever we sin, we are not the only one who feel the effects of that, but oftentimes those in closest proximity feel it as well. Listen, I want to be really frank this morning. One of the ways this shows itself in our lives is in, the li- is in the lives of wives and children who suffer when a husband runs from the Lord. That wives and children who are in closest proximity to that man who is running from God, shaking his fist at him, they suffer the greatest. Some wives and children end up spiritual widows and spiritual orphans because the man in their home is pursuing a master's degree in EBC. You know what that is? Everything but Church. They have every toy and every hobby. They give all their discretionary energy and time to those things. They may work hard all week long, but the reason they work hard all week long is so they can play hard all weekend long. They may give lip service to the Lord, but their wife can see through it. Their kids can see through it too as well as they get older and older and older. They see the patterns in their father's life. The man may honor the Lord with his lips, but his heart is far from God. There's no interest in the things of God. There's no desire for any accountability in his life. There's no pursuit of holiness. There's no appetite for God's word. There's an indifference towards the things of God. And this often shows itself, one of the ways it shows itself most frequently is this, and I see it at times, is when a wife begins to attend church more and more frequently without her husband and with the kids. Sunday after Sunday by herself, she attends a life group a small group alone, goes to women's Bible studies because the husband doesn't go to men's Bible studies, but she wants to continue to serve the Lord. And then as the kids get older, what ends up happening is she has to fight with them to get them to come to church on Sundays because they they see their dad basically living like a grown-up boy all weekend long and playing all weekend long. So why can't they pursue all of their hobbies all weekend long and they don't want to come and attend and be a part of Christ's body any longer either? So she has to fight them to gather with God's people for worship and the word. See, that when, when we shake our fist at God, men, and we rebel against him, there's an apathy toward him, an indifference toward him. You are not the only one who's going to suffer, but your wife and your children will get caught up in the lightning and the thunder and the blizzard conditions, the typhoon, the flood, the hurricane, the tornado. Every single time. The same is true for husbands and children. It happens less frequently, but for husbands and children, when a wife is running from the Lord, the same is true that close friendships can be wounded deeply whenever one is running from God's felt presence and conviction and call in their lives. Churches can be divided when truth is exchanged for lies, gossip, and malice, and accountability is exchanged for apathy and allowed to dwell in God's people. 
See, our sin impacts those who are in close proximity to us. So what do you do then if you find yourself in the midst of one of these self-inflicted storms? We see in the text that there's no way that you can work your way out of it. But that the only viable option is this, church, is to surrender to the Lord. Look at the, look at the way the sailors try to weather the storm. In verse 5, they try to unload all their cargo and toss it in the sea. They get, we can just lighten the load. Right, so that we'll be a little bit more buoyant on those waves as they bounce around us. And then they try to call out to their gods. In verse 7, they cast lots to try to find out who's responsible. In verse 13, we're told that they pick up the oars and they try to row as hard as they possibly can to get back to dry ground. But it was pointless and futile because as the harder they rowed, the harder the wind blew. They discover that all their best efforts to work themselves out of the storm are futile. So in verse 11, they ask Jonah this question. The one who's responsible for bringing this storm. They say, what should we do to quiet the winds and the waves? And Jonah's reply in verse 12 is shocking even to them. Listen to what Jonah says in verse 12. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, we know this is shocking for the sailors because what is their response in verse 13? Right, row, row, row your boat, okay? Not gently down the stream, but against this fierce wind. However, when they realize there's no getting around what Jonah has suggested, they do three things. They lift him up. They cry out to God, God, would you not hold us accountable for the, this blood on our hands, right? Not, 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 not charge this to our account, And then they toss him overboard and something miraculous happens in the text. The winds die down. The sea becomes calm. And then something even more miraculous happens because those pagan sailors on the deck of that ship, the very kinds of pagans that Jonah refused to go to in Nineveh to call out against that great city for their evil had come up before the Lord. The very kind of men that Jonah didn't want to go and minister to are now on the deck of the ship, and they exceedingly fear, again, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the God of covenant, who had introduced himself to Moses through the burning bush. They fear him, they revere him, they offer sacrifices to him on the deck of that ship, and they make vows to him abandoning their gods for the God there on the deck of that ship. Now, make no mistake about it, this is not some noble sacrifice on Jonah's part, okay? Because at any moment, Jonah could have raised the white flag and said, Lord, I'm done running, I'll go to Nineveh. (laughs) But rather, what Jonah would rather do in this moment is die than go to the Assyrians. So he says, throw me over. It's not some noble sacrifice. So for all, but for all that Jonah got wrong, the one thing that he got right was this, is that in order for this storm to stop, and some of you may be in that place, very place this morning, you want the storm to still, you want it, the winds to stop blowing, the waves to stop crashing. In order for the storm to stop, the one thing Jonah got right was this, that if he wants this storm to stop, he has to give himself over to the one who sent it. 
And this truth holds true in our experience as well. When God has sent a storm into our lives for our good, the only way to silence the winds and still the seas is to give ourselves over to Him. To surrender to Him. Because in war, when one side surrenders to another, they're in essence saying this, you win. I'm fighting a losing battle here. This is not going to end well for me. And whenever one side surrenders, they are essentially saying, we will come under your rule, we will submit to your ways, we will be governed by your will. And the same is true when we surrender to the Lord. We submit to His ways, come under His rule, stop running and fighting and say we will be governed by His will. Listen, when we surrender to the Lord for salvation, we say this, I give up on all my attempts to impress you by being someone or doing something. But rather, I place my faith in your son who was enough and did enough for me. So you stop running, thinking that somehow you've got to bring something to God to impress him. When we surrender to God for, uh, uh, in areas of ongoing temptation and sin in our lives, we say, Lord, I embrace your design for money. Right? The way that it should be given, the way that it should be spent, and the way that it should be saved. I want to serve you with it instead of using you to serve my acquisition of it. We say, God, I embrace your design. I give up. I quit fighting against you with regards to my sexuality. But I know that I've been made in your image. And so no matter whether or not my plumbing matches my urges, I'm going to submit my urges to you and entrust you with those. I'm going to stop shaking my fist at you. God, I'm going to embrace your design for forgiveness because sometimes the storms that are raging in our lives is because we've refused to extend forgiveness to those who have hurt us and bitterness has overwhelmed us and it's bled over into every other relational sphere in our life. And so everyone else we've driven away from us because of something someone said or something someone has done in our past. And we've refused to forgive. But the surrender to the Lord is to say, God, I believe that your forgiveness is enough for me and enough for them. So I will extend forgiveness in the way that you have forgiven me. When we surrender to God's call to love and lead our families, men, we say, Lord, I submit to your call to lead my family and not leave them as spiritual widows, not leave them as spiritual orphans, but to make investments in them, to build relationship with them, not to stay in the garage or on the boat or in the blind all weekend, every weekend, abandoning them. But I'm going to invest deeply, love them well, teach them the Bible. God, would you awaken within me? It's part of what surrender looks like. If that's where you are, indifference and apathy, God, you pray this prayer this morning. God, would you awaken in me a passion for you, a passion for your word, a passion for your name, and a passion for your people. And you pray and petition and ask God to do what only God is able to do. We say, Lord, will your will for me as a Christian and for us as a church be central to my life? Not peripheral, but be central to my life. See, we cannot work our way out of self-inflicted storms. The only way out is to surrender in obedience to the one who sent it. That's it. But if you're going to do that, I got one final thing for us this morning. If we're going to do that, if we're actually going to surrender in obedience to the Lord, 
who at times hurls great winds upon the seas of our lives, then you have to know something. You have to know that there is mercy and grace beneath the waves. In verse 17, we read about the most famous character in the book. A great fish. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, God could have let Jonah sink to the bottom of that ocean and drown under the waves, forever lost to Davy Jones's locker. And that would have been just because of Jonah's sin, because of his rebellion and flight from God. But rather, God withholds from Jonah what Jonah deserves. But not only does God, in His mercy, withhold from Jonah what Jonah deserves, He also doesn't just give Jonah a piece of driftwood and say, Jonah, good luck doggy paddling back to shore, bud. He withholds what Jonah deserves, but He also gives what Jonah doesn't deserve, and that He appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. And we read at the end of verse 2 to, this is a lovely sight, vomit Jonah out onto dry land where Jonah could start all over again. God withholds what Jonah deserves, gives what Jonah doesn't deserve. God extends mercy and grace to Jonah because the Lord wants Jonah to learn something about his character, that indeed he is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And church, the same mercy and grace that Jonah doesn't want extended to the Assyrians, God extends to him. Despite his sin. Jonah had run from God. The Lord had pursued him by sending a storm. And just when Jonah thought all was lost and wanted to die, God rescued him from drowning in a miraculous way. For Jonah, there was indeed mercy and grace beneath the waves as he was essentially surrendered himself over to death to the one who had sent this storm. Not only was there grace and mercy beneath the waves for Jonah, but there will be for you as well if you would surrender yourself to the Lord. And the way that you and I can know that for sure is because of what Jesus in the New Testament in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel calls the sign of Jonah. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus refers to the sign of Jonah and says that the only sign that will be given to his generation, this wicked and evil and perverse generation, will be the sign of Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was assigned to the people of Nineveh in his day, to the wicked, evil people of Nineveh, he said, the sign of Jonah will be given to the wicked, evil people in this generation that Jesus lived among. So that just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so also Jesus would be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And at one point, God would tell the fish to vomit Jonah onto dry ground. And at another point in human history, God would say to the grave, let him go. And Jesus would rise from the grave, victorious over Satan and sin and death. And that's the only way you and I can be assured that whenever we finally raise our hands and say, God, I surrender. I surrender. I'm not running anymore. That whenever we give ourselves over to the God who sent the storm, that we will find the same grace and mercy beneath the waves that Jonah did. It's all because of Jesus. 
Have you met Him this morning? Do you know Him this morning? Otherwise, listen, you will be like my dog. Okay? I remember whenever we first got our dog and we adopted her from the uh, Garland Animal Shelter. And uh, <laughs> when, when we, I, my wife called me and said, we found her. I, All right. And so I went and met her over at Petco or PetSmart, one of those places over there, big box pet store over in Rowlett off 190. They were coming home with her. And so we picked out a dog bowl and dog bed and the kids picking out leashes and collars and all the frilly stuff for this little female mix of a Jack Russell and Corgi is what we believe she is. Right, sweetest little dog. She can jump as high as my head and run much faster. Right, and so when we finally get her home, uh, my my wife and daughter had gone in the door with the dog before my son and I came up the driveway because we were driving separate vehicles. And so we get into uh, we. I go to open the door of the house and listen. That dog. She made a beeline for that front door, and she took a left down the street, and she kept going. And I called her name and called her name. She didn't even respond, right? I start run, like I'm literally in jeans and flip-flops. And I take off running down the street through this neighborhood right here in jeans and flip-flops and a polo shirt, okay? It was, a, it was summer, right? And so I'm running through the neighborhood in flip-flops. And I, sh- I see her darting in between houses and through driveways and around fences. And all over, I chase that dog for a mile and a half in flip-flops trying to catch her. Because my daughter's at home crying, right? Distraught over the fact that the dog has escaped and she's going to get hit by a car and die, right? That's all she can think of in her mind. So I'm chasing this dog. Finally, this kind Samaritan pulls up next to me and says, Hey, man, you want to ride? And so I jump in his Jeep Cherokee, and we're driving around the neighborhood following the dog everywhere she's going until she finally comes back. Right? We kind of follow her back. She makes her way back down our street. I get out of the, the Jeep, and I'm calling her over to me. My wife's coming from this direction. I'm coming from this direction. We're trying to corral her in corner, and finally we snatch her up. But you know why she ran from us in the first place? She didn't know us. She didn't know us. So the first opportunity that she could get away, she did. And listen, if you do not know God as He's revealed Himself in Jesus Christ, you will run and run and run and run from Him. Until you see the sign of Jonah. And it becomes marvelous in your eyes. That this God that you and I have rebelled against came chasing after us. And we see the one who gave himself over to the greatest storm in human history. The storm of our sin. The storm of our guilt. The storm of our shame upon the cross. Only if you see that. Can you raise your hands and say, I surrender. And that's the only way out of self-inflicted storms. Let's pray, church. Father, thank you that you do not leave us to work our way out of our own sin. But that you lovingly sent your Son. 
And Father, I pray this morning for those who are in the middle of self-inflicted storms. I pray that the goodness of Christ, the living water that is found in Him as we sang of earlier, I pray that it would wash away their resistance. And I pray that they would come to raise their hands and say, I surrender. I embrace your design. I embrace your will. I embrace your ways. I will stop trying to be impressive in your sight, but know that your son has done everything that I need in order to be rescued from whatever storm that I've created. Father, for those in the room this morning or who are listening online who may be experiencing collateral consequences for someone else's rebellion and running, I pray that you bring them comfort and peace where appropriate. Help them to speak words of truth and grace. That where reconciliation is needed, that it would be found because of the work of your son. Where husbands and wives and fathers and children and mothers and sons and wives and husbands in relationships where there are spiritual orphans and spiritual widows. I pray that in our community there would be fully functioning, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered families. And that as we taste of your goodness and experience your transforming power in our lives, that it would indeed be a witness to the watching world. Where there is apathy in our hearts and indifference towards those who do not know you. Would you melt that by the power of your spirit? And we no longer run away when we feel your thumb bringing conviction of our sin. But when we return in repentance. But I do ask, Father, that where necessary, that you would override and that you would hurl storms into our lives to get us our attention and bring us back to you. And they would respond because we know you are good. And you've proven that through your son. We pray it in his name. Amen.